This is a Daily Reflection Podcast. I'm David H. I was um, 24 years old. At that time, I, I didn't feel like I belonged in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got here through divine intervention and my higher power was cleverly disguised as a judge at the time. And, and in that moment of identification, what happened to me was that when I connected to you, I somehow connected to God in a way that I don't even today understand. I felt the presence of God tell me in that moment, David, you don't have to drink anymore. There's a better way to live. Welcome to the Daily Reflection Podcast with your hosts, Michael L. and Lee M. On this show, we try to bring inspiration for those people seeking sobriety through interviews with members of the recovery community sharing their experience, strength, and hope through the lens of the Daily Reflections book. Each day, a new inspirational passage and a conversation. We are not affiliated with any 12-step or recovery program, but you will hear them mentioned throughout the course of an interview. Today on the show, David H. from Cape May, New Jersey. Before we get to the show, I'd like to ask for your help. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment, give us a rating, give us a review. This is going to help us expand our reach and improve the show. We greatly appreciate that. We hope you enjoy this episode. Good morning, Mike. How are you this morning? I'm doing great, Lee. How are you? I'm great. It's April 16th, and uh, what do we have going on in the studio today? Well, I'm really excited. We have my friend David H. from Cape May, New Jersey in the studio. We're going to be talking about today's daily reflection, which is anger, a dubious luxury. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. It's good to be here. And hello, Lee. Thank you as well. And just he- and hello, everyone else. My name is David H. I'm from Cape May, New Jersey. My sobriety date is September 11th, 1988. Good things can happen on, on September 11th sometimes. My home group is Good Morning Avalon. So it's great to be here today. Fantastic. Well, it's great to have you on the show. We start the show in the same way every day. We ask the guests to read the daily reflection for the day. If you have that handy, would you read it for us, David? Be happy to. Thank you. Anger, a dubious luxury. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of the normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. Alcoholics Anonymous, page 66. Dubious luxury. How often have I remembered those words? It's not just anger that's best left to non-alcoholics. I built a list including justifiable resentment, self-pity, judgmentalism, self-righteousness, false pride, and false humility. I'm always surprised to read the actual quote. So well have the principles of the program been drummed into me that I keep thinking all of these defects are listed too. Thank God I can't afford them, or surely I would indulge in them. David, what comes to mind before you came into sobriety about self-righteous anger, judgmentalism, and all that? If you would have asked me at that point in time, I would have told you that I was absolutely, even though I was riddled with them, I would have told you that I was absolutely free of them. I thought I, you know, one of the things that really I came to terms with long into my sobriety that I'm still coming to terms with is that what alcohol robbed me of was the ability to connect the dots 
And very often the, it robbed me of the ability to connect the dots within myself. So um, that's a long way of, of saying that I, I just didn't see myself as angry or judgmental. I saw myself as um, a nice, well-meaning victim. And, and my resentments and my sarcasm and my cynicism were simply um, unique parts of my super cool personality that I had constructed over the years. So um, I'm glad today, I'm grateful today that when I read that, I can relate to it very deeply. How do you feel about the way you saw yourself before you came into recovery? I reveled in that um, kind of the personality that I had constructed. I thought uh, I thought I was the smartest kid in the class. I thought I was what strikes me now actually is all the paradoxes, all the deep sort of fatal paradoxes that I lived because I thought that I was smarter than most people. I thought I was hipper than most people. I thought I was more self-aware than most people. And slightly underneath the surface of all that were deep fears and insecurities and resentments that I had no ability to either perceive or certainly be free of. So uh, that's why I'm grateful that the program has given me that that freedom that it feels like freedom today. It didn't feel like freedom at the time. It didn't feel like freedom when I was getting sober. It felt um, frightening, absolutely frightening and disorienting. I feel like alcoholism and addiction just serve to detach us completely from our awareness of our own feelings and coming into recovery. Part of it is we get a we get reconnected to those emotions and it's so painful and hard, but I was curious, you came in in 1988. Yeah. Yeah. How old are you? And what was that like? What was, what was your life like that it brought you into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous? I was um, 24 years old at that time. I, I didn't feel like I belonged in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got here through divine intervention and my higher power was cleverly disguised as a judge at the time. And so because of a, a DWI, I ended up being court-ordered to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I really thought it was the last place I needed to be, even though I was starting to suspect that my drinking might be uh, not normal. And so in, in uh, 1988, I was court-ordered to attend uh, 16, a grand total of 16 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, one meeting a week for four months. And I thought AA was interesting. I thought it was it wasn't what I expected, of course. What I expected was something decrepit and um, off-putting. And what I found was uh, the opposite. I found it warm, inviting, and I found it oddly something that I could relate to, although I couldn't tell you why or how. Um, so I came into the rooms and I was immediately drawn by the honesty, even though I didn't think I could relate to you people. But the honesty to me felt like it was both attractive and uh, off-putting because it was scary. And that's one of the things even today that 
um, serves to keep me well and sober is the honesty that I hear in the rooms. What it does is it acts almost like a um, a solvent of of sorts that that kind of like gently, sometimes gently, sometimes not so gently, eats away at the delusion that I am that I tend to want to pile on to my version of reality. So I came into AA and I started feeling this curiosity mixed with discomfort and. And then in the next to last meeting that I needed to make for the state of New Jersey, I'm sitting in that meeting and it was, I remember this, it was a Sunday night. It was September 11th, 1988, the day that I got sober. Going into that meeting, I had no interest in being a part of Alcoholics Anonymous or making it a deeper part of my life. In fact, I was getting uh, quite excited that I didn't have to make a lot of meetings you know, after, after this one, just one more and I'm done. But we were in that meeting and we were reading out of the 12 and 12 and it was um, the fourth step. And it got to that part where it talked about um, our whole problem was a total inability to relate to another human being. And we couldn't be a friend among friend, a worker among workers. Obviously I'm not getting the quote exactly right, but I remember hearing that read And it was the first time that I wholeheartedly related to the people of Alcoholics Anonymous to the point where I felt a deep, even though I didn't have a sense of being spiritual at that point today, I'll say I had a deep spiritual connection to those words because I felt like they were my life story and I couldn't relate to anybody. I couldn't be among people. I I felt defective in ways that I couldn't explain or articulate. And, and in that moment of identification, what happened to me was that when I connected to you, I somehow connected to God in a way that I don't even today understand. But I felt the presence of God tell me in that moment, David, you don't have to drink anymore. There's a better way to live. And something deep in my spirit, my soul cried out, yeah, I want this. And in that moment that I did that, the desire to, several things happened instantaneously. The desire to drink was instantly removed and has not returned in over 32 years. The desire to be a full-time active member of Alcoholics Anonymous was instilled was put in its place was instilled with me and and that has never left in in over 32 years and the knowledge that i was one of you people and needed to follow this program to the best of my ability was those were just core beliefs that were it was not educational it was in a flash thank god i've i've not uh, strayed from those convictions um, since that time, all these years. Did you have a, a concept of a higher power? Did you have God in your life prior to coming into AA? And maybe talk a little bit about how your conception of a higher power has changed over time. I did have a conception of a God of a higher power, but it wasn't a, it, it was a very self-serving vision. Um, I, I think it, it was a combination of Santa Claus and uh, an ambulance driver. <laughs> And, you know, the foxhole prayers, that kind of thing. It was a God of convenience, really. Um, 
And even um, when I came in to AA and I knew that I needed uh, a higher power, I was full of anxiety because one of the things I've learned over the years, just as an aside, is my, my delusions never feel like delusions. They feel like the most clear-eyed conviction that I'm capable of mustering at that time. So I was genuinely frightened that I needed a higher power because I thought there's no way a higher power could understand me as well as I understand myself. So I'm screwed because God, I'm going to have to find a way to tune God into me as, as clearly as I'm tuned into myself right now. And um, so that was my first higher power. And then when I realized that that was deficient, I got frightened. Every time I've been faced, and I realize this, every time I've been faced with a deeper kind of invitation to know my God, it's not been preceded by bliss. It's been preceded by terror. That's been consistent the whole length of my sobriety to this day. At first, I realized that my view of a higher power was deeply deficient. What do I do? And so I turned to someone I trusted in the room and and asked them about praying because I didn't know about praying. I didn't understand about praying. And they said, um, they handed me a card that had It wasn't um, the green card. It was some other card, but I know that it had the Lord's Prayer on one side and the prayer of St. Francis on the other. And they said, just say these prayers every morning and every night and get on your knees. And that's where you can start praying. And I started doing that. And I lived in a room that was uh, like an upstairs uh, bedroom attic that was um, covered in 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 you know wooden uh, paneling, and I say that to to say that I would kneel on the floor and say these prayers to the wall that piece of paneling, and I and I really believed I was praying to the paneling because I felt nothing, I didn't understand anything. But after doing that for a number of weeks, every day relentlessly. I started to feel something. I started to feel something stir within me. And that those first indication of, of a higher power that was personal to me, that's how it started to emerge. And throughout the years, what I've constantly had to do is constantly push away the parts of my ego and the parts of my mind that want to grab hold of and take ownership of that relationship with the higher power and move more deeply into a place of surrender and willingness and total unknowingness that um, creates just enough space for my higher power to come into my life one day at a time. You're uh, reminding me of Kurt Z telling us to surrender to the surrender of surrendering, surrendering. Mm. It's all surrender. Surrendering the attempt to surrender and just be and let higher power creep in. I remember early on in my first year, um, I was um, I was talking to a priest who was also in recovery. And I was, because what happened was probably about a year or so into recovery, I started um, having some experiences that were uh, otherworldly that I didn't understand. And I remember he told me along along the lines of what you just said, 
that one of the things I had to surrender in my first, in, in my third step was every conception I had of God and every idea I had of God. And I thought it was mind-blowing for a priest to be telling me this. Um, it was the only way that I, I think I've been able to move forward is that um, what I've learned is that um, God, I don't think God scripts himself for me, but I think my mind scripts what God is in order to make sense of the world around me. And what I've had to continually do, even recently, is totally throw away the script and start anew at different periods of my sobriety in order to let God reintroduce himself to me one day at a time. That's beautiful. I wish we had three hours to talk to you about this stuff. Um, But I want to come back uh, just for a second or two to when you were 24 years old, coming in to recovery. Did you have a group of friends that you had to change once you got into AA? How did AA shape your, your community? I did have a group of friends and for, uh, at the beginning, what I tried to do was, um, I tried to reconcile it, you know, and in, like, I think a lot of people do, and we've all heard it going to the bar and drinking, you know, soda and that kind of thing. And the longer I moved and the further I moved down this path, the more difficult that reconciling process became. I just couldn't you know, I thought everybody should be, whether you were alcoholic or not, I thought you should be as fascinated with this thing as I was. And the fact is that most people weren't, and those that weren't alcoholic had no reason to be. I had to make some hard choices eventually and really make the decision. And this was this was an uncomfortable decision at first to, to basically root my social life in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was a scary thought at first. And, and and today I can say it's grown far beyond that. I mean, I have a wide circle of friends, but I needed to make that initial commitment to really rooting myself in Alcoholics Anonymous. And for a young guy um, at, at 24, 25, that seemed like just a, almost a death sentence, but I was but I, I became willing to do it because it was the only thing that felt right and not painful. What might you tell a, a new person, a, a young person that, you know, that may not know whether they belong, but they're just struggling with, with life as it is? Really try to trust your heart. Alcoholics Anonymous, in my experience, has never made my life smaller it's never depleted my life in any way. And it has sometimes asked me to make sacrifices. In each case, those sacrifices have led me to a much greater realization of who I am and how to be in the world. And find your friends in Alcoholics Anonymous. Find the people that you resonate with. Use them as your sounding boards. Know that you're going to make mistakes and know that it may be painful at times, but know also that if you can breathe into that space where God lives in you, whether you believe in God or not, you will be guided. I really believe that. Going back to the daily reflection, do you experience 
judgmentalism, self-righteousness, some of these things that it talks about today? And, and how do you deal with those things? Yeah, I, I, I very much experienced them. And, and I couldn't help just because of my history, I could not help but um, insert another one in there, which is depression, which is another um, form of uh, anger that um, I can't afford to wallow in. And, and how I experience them is two ways. One is there, for some of these uh, emotions, I will... It's, it's almost like going into the candy store where you're overindulging and you, there's this sense of, oh man, I'm in dangerous territory right now. I better be careful. And then, um, but where the, the growth has happened for me is when I have been locked into those emotions and I can't shake them, even though I know intellectually that I have to. And that's when I realize I'm, I'm hitting a new level of powerlessness. I am, and that's been especially the case with depression, is I have found myself at times in deep depression, even recently in my sobriety, and I've not been able to shake it. And if it wasn't for AA meetings and service in AA meetings, um, there are times where I think I, I may not have survived, but the service and the meetings have allowed me to um, practice these principles just enough to get some breathing space between me and the character defects so that God could eventually come in and help rescue me. I love that. We We recently had somebody on... Natasha's episode, she talked about having bipolar disorder and, and shared significantly about mental illness and recovery. And she stated that what has helped her more than anything is diving into service. What does service look like for you and your recovery today? When COVID hit, my home group is Good Morning Avalon uh, in, in Avalon, New Jersey. And we were like, like most places, face-to-face -face meetings and that suddenly got shut down and not, didn't know what to do. My wife had a zoom account. I didn't know anything about zoom. Um, but I asked my wife if she could show me a few things and I jumped onto her zoom account. And for the first week or so, we used my wife's zoom account in order to patch together, meetings. And suddenly, um, I became the sort of de facto Zoom chairperson. And so I started to organize our uh, Good Morning Avalon online meeting. What that turned into is that over the last year, I have become the online uh, coordinator for our group. And so for the first four or five months, it meant I was running the Zoom function. We call it hosting in our group. I was hosting every single meeting. I did that for five months. And then um, suddenly I realized I couldn't handle it all and I needed to turn it over. And But then I coordinate the host and I coordinate the, the group calendar for the online group. And I can tell you, speaking back to the, the period, uh, you know, because I, I, when I was 30 years sober, some changes happened in my life and I got hit with a bone crushing spell of depression that was worse than anything that I experienced during my drinking. 
And I think the only way that I survived it was that ongoing daily service to our AA Zoom meeting. And um, as a result of that, I think I could get out of myself just enough in order to, at least I could act right and not indulge in my depression for that hour that I had to be kind of like there for other people in AA. Yeah, that's such a powerful commitment. And I, I'm loving seeing this very same thing happen in so many meetings around the country and around the world. You know, you have these people that have the skills, they have the wherewithal to, to pull things together and, and form these new groups online. You know, AA is so resilient in that way. I love it. David, is there anything else you'd like to tell the audience before we wrap? No, I don't think so. But just thank you so much for inviting me here today. So great to have you. Thank you. I just want to acknowledge you, David, for sharing so honestly and openly about your depression. It's important that we talk about these things. And oftentimes it doesn't get spoken about. There's an element of shame and especially for somebody with as much sobriety. So thank you. And also, I want to let the audience know that we had the episode with Natasha, episode 63, aired on March 4th also we had a discussion about depression and bipolar disorder and other issues that come up for people. So we feel like we want to give everyone a voice on this show and people are sitting there all by themselves sometimes at home suffering with things, lots of different things. And so it's important that we talk about it. So just thank you for that today. And um, thank you for showing up. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find us online, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash daily reflection podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Daily Reflector. You can read stories of recovery from our community at blog.dailyreflectionpodcast.com. Please don't forget to give us a rating on your podcast app. We greatly appreciate it. Have a great day.